The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to In Discussion. My guest today, David Siegel, talks the life of soprano Susan Chilcott. A remarkable career cut short with the onset of breast cancer at the age of 40. Susan Chilcott, an operatic legend. Susan Chilcott was an English soprano considered one of the best of her generation. While achieving worldwide fame in opera and classical music, her remarkable career was cut short with the onset of breast cancer at the age of 40. She had success in many of the major opera houses around the world and was particularly known for her interpretations of Britain and Janacek. After her death, a foundation known as the Susan Chilcott Scholarship was set up to help aspiring singers with their careers. This legacy sets the stage for future performers acting as a great tribute to the genius and courage of this inspiring British soprano. David Siegel joins us today, a lifelong friend and long-time manager. David, welcome. Thank you. David, I understand that you are calling us today from London. How is the weather over there? Well, it, it was pretty cold and it was snowing, but the snows melted. And as somebody said in the letter to the Daily Telegraph the other day, um, uh, you know, I don't know what they discussed at um, Copenhagen, but they obviously got something right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm pleased to tell you that, that today I'm in Phoenix, Arizona at the, the broadcasting studio, so it's slightly warmer. <laughs> but I, I will admit to missing England uh, very much. Well, it's looking very beautiful in the snow, I can tell you. <laughs> How wonderful. How wonderful. I grew up, David, in the in the 60s. Uh, I lived in a cottage a mile from Stonehenge and spent my whole childhood running around Stonehenge, so I understand the English countryside yeah. to be an extraordinary well, place. On, on, on the way to where um, Sue lived. Yes, and it was my great pleasure to meet... 
uh, Sue, I believe in the summer of 2001. Yeah. At that point, I was a photographer uh, working in the south of England, and I uh, met Sue at her beautiful cottage uh, in Tisbury in Somerset. Timsbury? Tisbury? Timsbury, yeah. In Timsbury. And, well, uh, actually, it was... Um, that's where her parents lived. She lived in a little village called Blagdon. Blagdon. Wonderful, and, a wonderful Somerset name. Yes, and, and quite wonderful overlooking the, the beautiful lake. Now, Indeed. that is the Chew Magna area, that I believe. That's right, yes. Which was featured in the film Sense and Sensibility, from what I yes, remember. that's right. Well, that was uh, n not to play too much on that, but that was a wonderful week. And as you know, my, Chloe at, uh, Cl my daughter Chloe at that stage was two years old, and she spent two or three days there playing in the, the garden with young Hugh. Yes. And those were wonderful memories, and I, I do remember taking a really beautiful photograph of Susan. She was uh, so very helpful to me, and we, we took a couple of photographs on that that. Uh, that beautiful uh, garden's edge overlooking the the lake. Well, those photographs are still being used. You'll be pleased to know. Well, that is that is absolutely wonderful. You have obviously um, great knowledge uh, of Susan's life. Uh, you were so very involved as n not only lifelong friend but her manager. Can you chart for me Susan's life, beginning with the early days uh, in her childhood and and her adoptive parents, and and moving through those those uh, those childhood days to the point where uh, she finally found in Molly Petrie a, a wonderful uh, lifelong partnership. Well, um, let's start at the very beginning. Um, Sue was adopted by two absolutely extraordinary people um, uh, Margaret, her mother and Cyrus, her father who both came from a small village in Somerset called Timsbury and never left it, lived there all their lives and her father Cyrus still lives there to this day um, and it, there came this this infant who amazingly um, at the age of three um, began to <clears throat> manifest um, some degree of musicianship her, her teachers at um, nursery school noticed that she had a great sense of rhythm and um, responded to music and even more remarkably, they suggested to um, her parents that she ought to, um, you know, be taught music. And you have to understand that this was in a in a very small village in in the depths of um, what we call the West Country in in England, which is a very rural community. And um, you know, for two parents who never left the village and who, um, you know, were, her father worked um, uh, in a local, um, um, I think, sawmill, actually, and her mother worked in a bookbinders, um, had nothing to do with music. 
um, um, you know, they suddenly responded to this and actually did take her to um, a music teacher and she started to learn music at a very basic stage and a little bit of, of singing and that developed um, and the extraordinary thing is that she then entered what we in the UK call um, music festivals and they were you know local um, sort of competitions in a way at a sort of um, fairly basic level um, and as a small child she would go in for these things and usually win them because she had a very extrovert personality and you know she was cute and all that and one day her teacher at the time said look you know she's got kind of beyond me I think she needs um, she needs to be taught properly but she was only um, you know about um, 11 or 12 at the time and she um, entered for another one of these competitions and won it and one of the judges was Molly Petrie and so her parents took her to Molly and said you know is there anything you can uh, do with this child and um, Molly said well you know I don't take anybody on until they're 15 or 16 at the very uh, youngest but um, you know there's something about this girl and basically took her on and the rest was history. I understand that much of that early period was actually spent in the church or in community settings. Is that is that correct? Yes, I think it is. It is correct. I mean, obviously, I wasn't around at the time, but um, her parents were um, uh, regular churchgoers, and um, the they were um, they belonged to a Methodist church um, in Timsbury. And uh, the young Sue would be taken along. And then, of course, as she got a bit older and, and um, began to develop her voice, you know, she would, um, she would sing there. She would sing, sing solos. And she was very much part of that community uh, till the day she died. So Somerset really was her life. And even though she came to travel so much with her work, was that cottage really her refuge? Was it somewhere that she always felt happy to return to? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was. It was an absolutely essential part of her life. Um, and um, despite all the international travel and the um, so-called high life, and by by their standards that she was leading, she was never more comfortable at home than in Somerset and with her parents, with her community. And that remained the case throughout her life. Can we look at the significance of her interpretations of Britain and Janicek? What was this to do uh, to her career? Um, how was this to launch her career? Or, or had indeed her career fairly well been launched by that time? No, I mean, her career um, was launched in a very, um, in a rather sort of organic way, really. I mean, 
uh, let me perhaps um, go back to where I first encountered her. Um, I encountered her in, in, a, in a rather extraordinary way. Um, a conductor who I knew very well and who was very keen for me to represent him um, and always used to ask me to come to his concerts, which I never went to, finally said, look, you, you must come. I'm conducting a performance of Elijah, Mendelssohn's Elijah, in the Royal Albert Hall. And he said, there is a very extraordinary young soprano um, I found who's just um, finishing college. Um, and you should, um, you should hear her. And so kicking and screaming, I went to the Albert Hall. Last thing I wanted to do was sit through another Elijah, which probably wasn't <laughs> going to be terribly good. Um, and indeed, there was this extraordinary young soprano who um, looked absolutely magnificent um, and who just, you know, her voice just soared through over the orchestra through through the hall and um i was completely t taken by this and um um and i went backstage and i'm not i can't even remember whether i met her on that occasion i think uh, i may have just um met her very very briefly but um i was so taken that i did something i've rarely done since uh, which was to write to her at um, the Guildhall School of Music and say, look, um, you know, if you don't already have an agent, I'd be very interested in talking to you. Um, and she she came to see me and um, basically said to me that she didn't think she was ready for um, a, a professional career. And indeed, for about um, two years, um, I would make offers to her, and most of which she turned down. Now, whether it was she that was turning them down or uh, on the advice of Molly, um, uh, I don't know. But, uh, but I suspect the decision mainly came from her because she had an enormous um, instinct um, and um, insight into her, herself and what she was capable of doing. But it came to the point when I, you know, there were moments where I thought, well, look, it's never going to happen. She's never going to actually get out there and do it but she did um, and when you ask about her particular association with Britain and Janacek um, that developed that didn't that wasn't there at the beginning um, she was an extraordinarily um, as I say um, instinctive person she was a woman of um, intense um, emotion and she her life um, really was a series of of um, uh, I won't say emotional crises but emotional involvement and I mean that in the, in the wider sense I mean she she was a very uh, emotional in the in the strict sense of the word person her emotions uh, were very much on the surface and um, I think that as time went on she discovered that those Janacek heroines like 
Katya Kabanova or Yenifer. Um, uh, you know, Desdemona in Othello. Um, these were the um, uh, the governess, obviously, in, in, in Turn of the Screw, and, of course, probably what is arguably her greatest role, Ellen Orford in Britain's Peter Grimes. These were the roles that really, um, in which she could invest this, huge range of emotions that were always simmering in her and as i always used to say you know she she um uh, she gravitated towards these tragic heroines because in a way it mirrored her own life and she once said to me rather movingly really uh, when she was um rehearsing uh, katya kabanova in um for the netherlands opera and that, that was in 1999, if that my memory in, serves me right? That, no, that was actually in 2000. And it was for that that she received the Performance of the Year Award from the Friends of the Netherlands Opera. Um, and I remember she, her saying to me, you know, when I'm rehearsing a role like Katya, and Katya is a, is a woman who, um, you know, lived in a small Czech village, um, and felt um, oppressed, and all she wanted to do was to was to to fly like a bird from this um, uh, from this um, you know intense and claustrophobic society in which she 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 was. She said, "When I rehearse a role like that, I have to recall all the awful, horrible things that happened in my life." And in some way, she, uh, the role she sang mirrored her personality. And the number of roles she sang was fairly limited. And all of them were in some way through. Well, and that's not to say that she didn't <laughs> sing uh, comic roles. She did sing... Um, you know, um, Alice in, in Falstaff, and she, um, she sang um, uh, Helena in, in A Midsummer Night's Dream, incidentally, also by Benjamin Britten. Um, and these were, and she was hilarious. She could be absolutely hilarious on stage. It is well known that not only was she a wonderful soprano, but that she was also a wonderful actress. Uh, that that has been indicated by so many professionals who worked with her throughout those years. Was that a unique characteristic that that everybody saw right from the beginning of her career? Yes, I mean, uh, to say it was unique, um, uh, she's not unique in that sense, but she was very unusual in that sense. And I remember um, she um, right at the very beginning of her career she sang a modern piece um, uh, written by a young English composer um, it, which was more or less a sort of one one woman show I can't remember exactly how many characters there were in it but it was basically her and I went to see it in a, in a sort of studio theatre and I came away, and I remember 
speaking to a director of an opera house and saying, you know, you really must take an interest in this girl. She is a real stage animal. This woman, you know, commanded the stage in the most extraordinary way. And it was not done in a flamboyant way because basically, as I said, she, uh, she was, she became the characters that she portrayed. Um, and she was able, I mean, I think the remarkable thing about her was that it was reflected both in her um, musical approach to the role and her singing, as well as her um, a dramatic approach to the role. And interestingly enough, <clears throat> at the, again, at the beginning of her career, she went off to Banff in Canada to do a course there, part of which was an acting course. And that was one of the reasons that she went there was actually to learn acting skills. And that was really what made her the fine artist she became. I recently had the privilege of spending a program with Michael York. We talked about the immersion uh, values and, and methodology that a, an actor has. And M Michael indicated to me that there are actors who can go home afterwards and uh, become detached. There are actors uh, like uh, Daniel Day-Lewis who are fully immersed uh, for months on end to the point where nobody can even get near them. Uh, was that the case with Susan once she was uh, in the theatre uh, for so many weeks at a time that she would not be able to disconnect from the role that she was playing? Well, that's a very interesting question. And... and um uh, as you know, um, Sue and I were married towards the end of her life, and so I had an insight into um, uh, the, the very much the day-to-day -day Sue. Um, she was um, she was a very she was a, a good fun girl. She enjoyed um, she enjoyed a laugh. She enjoyed having fun. She enjoyed um, all the normal things that um, you know, girls enjoy she had an extraordinary ability to concentrate 100% when she was focused on a role she it was very interesting she was, after a performance, whether it was a stage performance or a concert performance she would be off the stage you know before the applause had finished and in her jeans and out the door she didn't hang around she didn't want all the adulation and the parties and all that kind of thing that was not her and sometimes you know when you'd been through an in intensely emotional show, you know, and you go around and you, you know, barely know what to say to her, you find her sitting there in jeans sort of, you know, wanting to, you know, well, you know, wanting to go and um, um, sit at home in front of the telly and kick her shoes off. But, of course, that belied what was really going on. And it was very strange um, spending time with her. Um, you know, sometimes you weren't sure whether you were with Sue or whether you were with Katya or whether you were with um, Yennefer or whether you were with, um, 
Helen Orford because these things used to seemingly used to um, bubble to the surface. They were always simmering there. She was always in some way, you know, her brain was working or, um, you know, relating to these things and then they would bubble to the surface and she'd go off into a, a sort of reverie of her own or, or rush to the score or sit at the piano and um, uh, and work at it, which was sometimes very disconcerting. But it made me realize that these characters, as I said, were were in in way in many ways part of her, and they would appear from time to time, seemingly unexpectedly, but who knows what was actually going on in her mind. Would it be accurate to say that that interpretation that was quite acclaimed of Ellen Orford uh, around 1994 was a turning point? Was that a, 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 and was that a point, David, at which Sue possibly may have become more insulated in her work, insulated from the world? Well, um the um, that performance of Ellen Orford, which was in Brussels, and indeed was in 1994, um, was what can I say seminal to her um, to her career. It is the um, it is the performance that made her career. It's the performance. Um, I think, you know, I'm maybe biased, but I think if you talk to anybody who was privileged to be at that first performance, I think everybody will say that something very, very remarkable happened that night. And I'm not just saying, um, from her point of view, it was an extraordinary evening. It was one of those extraordinary moments where, you know, everything came together. But the um, background to that performance is very significant. Um, she w was one of her uh, very early professional performances was with Scottish opera. And she was singing um, a role um, in Carmen by Bizet, and the role was Frasquita. Now, Frasquita is a small role, but it's an important role. And there are three girls who are Carmen's mates. And they don't sing, um, they don't have any solos. They're always, they're always singing together. So it's a sort of ensemble piece, an ensemble role. And I had been trying to interest the uh, casting director of the Brussels Opera in her. And um, he said to me, well, what's she, what's she doing? And I said, well... You know, she's singing Frasquita for Scottish Opera. Um, he said, no, no. He said, Frasquita's an important role. You can tell a lot from Frasquita. I will come to Glasgow. So he came to Glasgow. And in the interval, or intermission, as I think you call it, um, uh, he said to me, came up to me, and he said, um, tell me, do you think she would sing one of the nieces in Peter Grimes. And it's a similar role in Peter Grimes. There are three um, nieces uh, who are sort of 
silly little girls and they have um you know they have a rather kind of um uh, cute role but again it's um you know they 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 come on as a sort of trio and um i said yes of course she would you know she'd never worked abroad and I told her at the end of the show, I said, look, the director from, the casting director from Brussels Opera is here and he, he's, um, he'd like to offer you the role of, you know, one of the nieces in Peter Valgo. She thought, you know, she'd died and gone to heaven. And the next morning, I got on a plane down to London and um, ran into him and we sat next to each other on the way down and I said, you know something, Susan Chilcott is an Ellen Orford which is the lead role in Peter Grimes, other than Peter Grimes, lead for female role. And um, he said to me, no, 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 she's far too young. And I said, actually, I, I don't agree. I think she, you know, she's no elf. In any case, they'd asked somebody else who couldn't do it. And so um, he rang me up and uh, she, he said, um, would she come over to Brussels and audition? I said, yes, of course she would. And I rang her up and I told her to get over to Brussels, which she did. And the music director at the Brussels Opera at the time was Antonio Papano, who is now the music director of the Royal Opera House in London. And she went and sang. And the next day they rang me up and they said, well, you know, we, we, something happened which has never happened before. Um, three of us were auditioning um, Sue and she when she finished singing we all spontaneously applauded and we've offered her the role and I said good God what do you mean Ellen Orford she said he said yes and again the rest is history I mean it was one of those simply extraordinary evenings and she uh, Tony Papano um, then booked her, f virtually gave her carte blanche and said, you can sing anything you like. And they had this wonderfully long relationship. Her career is now fully established. She's recognized, well recognized. And now we arrive at, at uh, Glyndebourne, 2001, uh, with yeah. uh, Desmond Mona. Uh, that was absolutely amazing, uh, that performance. Now, how did that again elevate her career? Where was she going at that point, which was sadly to be um, displaced, obviously, by her yeah. illness? Well, you know, um, it's very hard to say what what would be. I mean, the fact is that in the last 18 months of her life, she sang um, uh, at the Netherlands Opera, she sang at the Metropolitan Opera in New York, uh, she sang at the Royal Opera at Covent Garden. And... Um, both the Metropolitan Opera wanted to reinvite her, um, and she was indeed due to repeat the um, Peter Grimes performances at the Royal Opera House because they were they 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 they, they were buying in that um, that production, and you know with her long relationship with um, Tony Papano. 
one can only assume that he would have um, engaged her to the opera house on a regular basis. So, you know, it's very hard to say. I mean, her debut at the Royal Opera House was made with uh, no lesser tenor than Placido Domingo um, in um, uh, The Queen of Spades by Tchaikovsky. Um, who knows? How was knows? that? How was that performance received, uh, David? How did uh, Domingo feel about Susan at that time? Was there a- any uh, discussion on that partnership that they shared? Um, Domingo is an incredibly generous colleague, um, and Domingo, um, who didn't know Sue at the time, um, uh, was certainly. Uh, prepared to take her on the reputation that um, uh, he had been um, given of her. Um, they uh, struck up a an extraordinary um, uh, partnership. Um, he clearly responded to this um, uh, amazing combination of vocal, musical, and dramatic ability, which, of course, mirrors his own. He saw in her a kindred spirit. And the two performances that they did were quite electric. And, and was, um, that, was that performance, uh, The Queen of Spades, uh, was that one of many planned at that stage? Um, well, I mean, she was, in fact... Um, uh, uh, supposed to repeat the Queen of Spades in um, in Madrid in twenty oh four with Domingo, um, and um, you know I'm sure that um, had she lived, she probably uh, would have done other things uh, with him because um, um, you know they they really um, you know they they they, they seem to spark seemed to fly you know it was it it was extraordinary and he was very generous um i remember that first night you know and it was a huge night for her and she she wasn't very well i remember she had a very bad cold um and she had um an extraordinary sort of diffidence really you know as i say she always was the first sort of out of the theater after a show and she never dwelt in, you know, in her curtain calls or anything like that. And I remember a wonderful moment when Domingo just sort of, um, you know, took her forward um, and sort of plonked her at the front of the stage and then walked back and let her take a solo bow, which, you know, for a, <laughs> for a tenor was pretty remarkable. Was she at this stage aware of the severity of her illness? Uh, yes, I mean she um, she uh, wasn't at that stage aware that it was it was mortal, but um, she um, it was her performance at Covent Garden was not that long after she had had you know fairly major surgery, and in fact her surgeon was present at that performance. Um, and um, and it was it was quite um, it was quite funny because um, uh, as you probably know she she had a sort of she 
actually had a mastectomy and um, uh, and he did this wonderful sort of reconstructive operation and um, uh, in her dressing room afterwards um, all he could do was talk about <laughs> the result of his work rather than her singing <laughs> <laughs> extraordinary her last operatic role as Jennifer for the Welsh National Opera I believe yeah. was in 2003 and of course she received the uh, um, the celebrated uh, Philharmonic Society Singer Award for yeah. that um, posthumously obviously yeah. uh, were you in attendance uh, that that time uh, that night uh, did you did you witness that last performance David um, well I, I mean I was certainly at um, at the Enifer in 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 Cardiff yes um, that was not her last performance um, she um, um, well, she was obviously involved with Fiona Shaw uh, and, and Ian Burnside. Yes. I mean, it was her last operatic performance. Yes, I think that's what I'm, um, I'm trying to It was her at. last operatic performance. And um, it was very sad because um, uh, she, was, um, she was due to record it um, with, uh, because the conductor, of course, was Sir Charles McCarris, who um, is uh, one of the great... Janacek interpreters um, and uh, they were to have recorded it but sadly she was not well enough to to do it and had to withdraw um, the performance was extraordinary I mean again you know Jennifer <laughs> is one of those tragic heroines which Sue portrayed so well do you and, do you um, think that she portrayed that sorry to interrupt David but no. do you think that she portrayed that purposefully in a way consciously uh, that that role given her own personal circumstances no i don't think i don't well i don't think that her um illness at the time um uh, contributed well i mean it it may have on some level but i think that that the intensity of her portrayal of that role um, was quite simply uh, her her identification with the character, um, and um, you know, as I said earlier, um, all these characters that she portrayed all reflected um, uh, an element of her personality. She obviously had an enormous determination for life. Oh. You know, you have suddenly described her... I remember Sue in the in that beautiful summer's afternoon um, being very... Uh, this outstandingly beautiful woman who yeah. was so uh, very gentle, very sensitive, uh, very unassuming, um, probably, as you say, quite an emotional... Um, uh, lady, and yet behind that, if we look back at this history over the last two or three years, we see this massive determination that oh, she had in her look, character. Absolutely. I mean, there was real steel there. I mean, she was she was um, incredibly strong, <clears throat> both physically and mentally. She, um, you know, she had 
an extraordinarily developed um, work ethic, which I think she got from her adopted parents. Um, and she, um, I think, I mean, th th there was, a, there was, of course, this wonderful sort of softness to her and um, uh, incredible generosity and and and, a, and an outrageous sense of fun. I mean, I portrayed her as this tragic heroine. In, in fact, I mean, she was hilarious, you know, and and very naughty, you know, and loved loved sort of um, uh, you know getting up to pranks and and all sorts of things. I mean, she must have been an absolute terror as a kid. Um, and um, but she was, you know, given this. Um, the, this amazing personality on stage. She was a very, she was a rather shy person in a way, um, and she she hated going to parties. Absolutely hated going to parties. She what she liked best was to to come home, kick her shoes off, and you know, drink um, uh, several glasses of wine with the people she wanted to be with, who the people who were close to her. And that's that was really what she. You know, if I, uh, you know, said, oh, we've got to go to this dinner, I mean, she, she, you know, you'd have to really drag her to it. Of course, when she, once she got there, she was the life and soul of the party, but um, she hated the prospect. I remember, you know, you talk about her, or I talked about her work ethic. I remember when she sang... Um, um, in a production of Eugene Onegin at the Paris Opera, Tatiana, with the great uh, Tom Hampson, American baritone. Um, I remember, you know, she had a... Oh, sorry, no, it wasn't Eugene Onegin. Forgive me, forgive me, it wasn't Eugene Onegin. It was, um, it was a, um, it was a, a Peter Grimes, not in Brussels, but um, when she did it in Paris. And um, she came off stage, and I went to her dressing room, and I could hear piano playing and singing going on. And I put my head round the door, and she was in her dressing room, in full costume and makeup, having just walked off the stage, having had a huge success at the, at the splendid Paris Opera working with her coach and I and she said can you give me a minute I'll, I'll be with you in a minute and after um, you know 15 minutes or so I went in there and I said for God's sake Sue you know can't you just enjoy your success for 10 minutes <laughs> she said no but I mean look yeah I mean the trio was all wrong and I, this was wrong one thing another she simply you know came straight off the stage and immediately started working on the things that had gone wrong and that was the kind of person uh, she was and that no doubt made her the kind of artist she was in the uh, final um, final months yeah. she had this amazing partnership with Ian Burnside about obviously for many years but also with actress Fiona Shaw uh, that that intimate poetry uh, those those recitals that they shared together uh, what 
gave her the the impetus to to get involved in that it was almost a different direction in a way how did that occur yes it's interesting um that that was ian burnside uh, who um uh, who encouraged her in that direction and inspired her in that direction ian um is a very extraordinary uh, person um a fine pianist but a man of enormous musical knowledge and knowledge of the repertoire and of course being very close to sue as he was um uh, for um well all her professional life really and in fact you know her his parents became almost kind of surrogate um uh parents to her and she had a very, very close relationship with um, Ian's mother because she lived in Glasgow and she spent a lot of time at Scottish Opera and she would stay with um, Mrs. Burnside. And um, so they had a very close relationship. And of course, um, Ian was aware of Sue's great qualities and said to her, you know, there is all this song repertoire which... Um, uh, you know, can develop, um, you know, all the, the, these characters in, 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 in that you portray in a, in a different context. And so he got her to do some recitals. Um, and he was friendly with Fiona Shaw, and they together devised um, um, both um, um, Shakespeare um evenings where Fiona Shaw would, would recite Shakespeare um, uh, and Emily Dickinson was the other um, uh, poet that um, uh, they explored because um, great composers had written fine music uh, to the words of both these poets. Fiona Shaw, as you know, is a, an extraordinary actress. I mean, really extraordinary, and a woman of of enormous intellect and intelligence, and completely bonkers, you know, in a wonderfully sort of Irish way. And the three of them, I mean, I remember having lunch with the three of them in a restaurant in London, and it was hilarious. I mean, they were talking across each other, they were, um, you know, talking, you know, through each other. There, was ne there never seemed to be any point of contact <laughs> at all. And out of it came these extraordinary evenings. And in fact, um, it was um, one of those evenings they did in Brussels in June of 2003, which was Sue's very last public appearance. And I was there and, uh, well, you can imagine what kind of an evening that was. Ian Burnside, that remarkable relationship that they had. And, of yeah. course, uh, Ian had agreed with Sue after knowing about her diagnosis that, that he would look after Hugh if, if the worst happened. Uh, what, was that, what was that partnership all about, David? It seemed quite amazing that, that two people could work so closely together in both their professional and their personal lives and, and be so devoted in, in, in their artistry? I think it was 
I think Ian was one of the very few, if not only, people um, of his caliber, I mean sort of intellectual, musical caliber, um, who um, uh, didn't intimidate Sue. Sue was very... uh, I mean, she was modest, but she... She also, she didn't really believe, I mean, I think she believed in herself um, as a singer enough to get her to walk out on stage in front of 2,000 people. But she didn't believe in her intellect. She thought that she was basically um, uh, fairly ignorant, which she certainly wasn't. Um, I mean, she was one of the brightest people and one of the most sort of intuitively intelligent people I've ever met. And I think that in in Ian, she found the one person who she could actually talk, with whom she could talk to about sort of deeper matters and higher matters, perhaps, but in a completely unthreatening way. And I think that was the basis of their musical relationship. Um, they happened to share um, uh, a lot of personal qualities, sense of humor, uh, sense of fun, um, uh, and all that uh, kind of thing, plus her very close relationship, particularly with Ian's uh, mother. Um, and when um, the inevitable presented itself, um, there was something very natural about Ian assuming the uh, the role of um, of Hughes' um, um, guardian, and the wonderful thing, and um, and that's a great tribute both to Sue and Ian is that um, it has resulted in Hugh um, having uh, not only a loving uh, father in um, in Ian, but um, uh, me maintaining a a close relationship uh, with him and all those other people who are very close to Sue also maintaining a close relationship um, with him. Um, And uh, if you see Hugh now, and you haven't seen him for for many years, he's now 11 and is a chorister at St. Paul's Cathedral and an extremely bright, uh, gifted boy and fine musician. Um, You know, he's become everything and more that Sue could possibly have wished for. And although at the time the press were uh, their usual um, uh, selves about, um, you know, this strange arrangement, it has worked quite, quite remarkably. She has obviously left an amazing legacy not only in Hugh uh, but also in the Susan Chalcott Scholarship 
Uh, and for all those people that have had the great privilege of listening to her in, in person over the years, what in the final minutes, David, would you say that you miss about Sue most and that she leaves, leaves to us? I think I think her her honesty. I think the fact that she was what she was. She didn't try to be anything else. She was not a diva. She 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 was she was a a, a real person for all her. Um, faults and 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 wonderful qualities, and um, I remember the day she died. I inevitably, you know, had the press on the phone, etc. And a newspaper rang me up and and said, um, asked me for a you know a tribute to Sue. And of course, I was completely you know I don't know what was going on and I said I had to call them back and I I sat down I remember with a friend of mine who who came around and I said I've got to give the Daily Telegraph a thing so I wrote out a rather sort of pompous formal thing and I rang them back and I read it to them and um, and the reporter said to me um, thank you very much uh, Miss Siegel now um, would you like to um, uh, pay um, a, a tribute to your late wife, and um, and, <laughs> and I said, well, "Hang on a minute! I've just read you a tribute." And um, quite instinctively, I said, without even thinking about it, I said, "She was somebody in whom art and life um, merged seamlessly," and that was true. It it was you know her life was her art, and her art was her life, and and. Um, uh, and somehow that's just the way it had to be. Quite possibly one of the greatest sopranos that we've seen in England for many years, if at all. Look, it, it's very, it's very easy, um, you know, to to to, to say um, these extravagant things about uh, somebody who was so tragically. Um, robbed of, of 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 her career at such an early age, who knows? She was um, a, a unique talent, and I think her great legacy was her um, that that uh, unique quality. I mean, there was nobody really quite like her. Both um, vocally, I mean, her voice was a was a very individual voice. I mean, you you you. You hear it and you recognise it immediately, um, and you know she combined, I think, every aspect of the art of singing, um, and I think, um, sadly, her recorded legacy is uh, is is fairly limited, but the, but it exists, and. Um, I remember in the last couple of months of her life, she listened to uh, quite a lot of music. 
um, and listen to other singers. And I remember one day she said to me, she'd been obviously listening to some music, and she said to me rather sort of whimsically, without any, um, you know, um, uh, sense of uh, self-importance or... or, or um, um, melancholy or anything like that she suddenly said yeah I wasn't too bad was I and I think that um, you know when I listen which is quite hard to do but I, I now have listened to um, a few of her recordings um, I'm rather taken aback because I always assume that I'm going to listen to it and think well you know she was fine, but actually, you know, was she really the greatest singer of uh, her generation? I listen to it now, and I think, blimey, you know, sh show me something better. I mean, it's, it's she, she was a very, very remarkable artist. Um, um, and um, as I say, she was very much her own person, her own artist. And um, I, I think it, it's, it's very difficult to compare her with anything because she was very, she was that in, individual.
course, Susan Chilcott, the English soprano who will be sorely missed. David Siegel, it's been a great privilege to share this time with you on the program today. I do thank you. It was my great pleasure. And uh, if, um, if some of your listeners um, uh, uh, have the advantage of hearing that glorious voice, well, um, that's what it's about. And to our listeners, we hope that you have enjoyed this program as much as I have today. If you require information on this or any other program in the series, visit davidgibbons.org. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the voice america business channel for more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest please visit voiceamericabusiness.com the voice america talk radio network is the worldwide leader in live internet talk radio visit voiceamerica.com the views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the voice america talk radio network its staff and management